Welcome back, Cramaholics. It's your host, Holly, and I'm back with another episode of Missing Mondays. Missing Mondays is a segment that was created by Kenzie and I to help keep missing persons' name and information in the media the best we can and to help aid in their return home. 90,000 people are missing in the U.S. at any given time, and while some are found alive or deceased, the majority are still missing today. On this segment of Missing Mondays, I will be sharing the information about Stephanie Crane. Chalice, Idaho is located in central Idaho, nestled alongside Highway 93. It's a small rural city with around 1,000 people residing there. Chalice is located on the Salmon River drainage and is near the Salmon Chalice National Forest. It's a town many would pass through on their way to prime hunting and fishing grounds, and it's about an hour from a bigger city. It's a place that's a stereotypical small town. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows what you drive and where you live and who your family is. A community where kids could ride their bikes to and from school without much worries in the world. Chalice is also the home of Idaho's most well-known missing persons case. Stephanie Lynn Crane was born on September 28, 1984 to her parents Ben and Sandy. She was the oldest of four girls and was an incredible big sister to her siblings. Growing up, Stephanie was extremely close with her father. They were like the best of friends. Ben did taxidermy as a side job and loved to go out hunting and fishing. And Stephanie wasn't quite old enough to hunt, but she was counting down those days until she would be able to go out in the woods with her father. But the two of them would be seen fishing and doing other outdoorsy things together. Growing up, Stephanie was always much more of a tomboy than a girly girl. She enjoyed having her girlfriends, but she always got along with the neighborhood boys. Instead of painting her nails in the house or playing Barbies, she could be found outside in the dirt playing trucks with her best friend Brandy Bennett's and the boys. Among playing in the dirt, outside exploring fishing and playing soccer, Stephanie was involved in a youth bowling league. On October 11, 1993, Stephanie and her friends would walk to the Chalice Lanes bowling alley after school. After bowling, most kids would either ride their bikes home or catch a ride with their parents. Stephanie would usually walk towards her grandma's house, who lived about 500 feet from the bowling alley. She was super close with her grandma and always enjoyed the time that she got to spend with her. Around 4.45 p.m., the bowling games were starting to wrap up for the evening, and one of the parents named Luann Berry was there, keeping score for the kids and watched as one by one as the games came to an end, the kids would either leave or be picked up. As she was leaving the parking lot, Luann spotted Stephanie in the parking lot. She stopped and asked her if she was going home, and Stephanie replied with yes. As Luann was backing out, of the parking space, she saw Stephanie near a footbridge that crossed the creek, which was the direction in which Stephanie's grandma, Hazel, lived. 
She was also seen by her best friend, Brandy, and her mother, but instead of being near the footbridge, she was waiting to cross Highway 93, which seemed odd, so Brandy's mom pulled up alongside Stephanie and asked her if she needed a ride. She declined and said that she was heading back to the elementary school because she forgot her backpack on the soccer field and then would be headed home. In total, it would have taken about 15 minutes for Stephanie to walk to the school, grab her backpack, and then make it back to her house, which this wasn't unusual for Stephanie to walk around. Being in this little town, she had so many freedoms to ride her bike and walk places. Now, Stephanie's parents' house was practically right next door to her grandma, Hazel's. She was always expected to be back at her own home by 5 p.m., As the minutes begin to tick past 5 p.m., Stephanie's mom gets a little anxious about her whereabouts, so she phoned over to Hazel to ask if Stephanie was there, which she replied that she hadn't seen her but would check outside the house to see if maybe she was out there playing with the neighborhood boys. Hazel saw the neighborhood boys, but when she approached them to ask if they've seen Stephanie, they all had stated that they had not. Both Hazel and Stephanie's mother, Sandy, began driving around looking for her. Surely she couldn't have gone far, being that they live in such a small community. Perhaps Stephanie had gone to a friend's house for a sleepover and forgot to ask, or maybe she was caught up playing outside with friends. As it begins to get darker out, the unease began to really settle in for Hazel and Sandy. Stephanie wasn't one to play outside in the dark, and in fact, she was actually quite scared of the dark. So much so that she wouldn't even sleep in her own room without some sort of light on. So there was absolutely no way that Stephanie would be out running around outside past dusk. Hazel and Sandy did everything they could to locate Stephanie, including calling all of her friends to see if she was there. At 8.15 p.m., Sandy went to the Custer County Sheriff's Office to report that she was unable to locate her 9-year-old daughter. Officers went to the creek that was located behind the bowling alley and began searching to see if she may have fallen in. They searched the best they could in the dark and didn't find any sign that Stephanie had been there. The Sheriff's Department called in backup to help search for Stephanie. The Custer County Search and Rescue Team came out as well as firefighters and others within the town. They began their search at the bowling alley and spread outward into town looking anywhere that Stephanie could be. They busted out all possible resources for this search. Along with foot searches, they conducted searches of the Salmon River by boat. They had brought in horses and four-wheelers to go over all of the rocky terrain and absolutely zero sign of Stephanie was found. At midnight, they called off the search until morning. The following morning, as everyone began to wake, the news of Stephanie's disappearance began spreading like wildfire. Her classmates, the ones that she had spent the evening bowling with, are stunned to hear that their friend cannot be found. Local law enforcement resumes their search for Stephanie, and not long after their morning searches began, state and federal law enforcement arrived in town to help as well. They collected information from Stephanie's family about what she had been wearing and also gathered pictures to send out to every law enforcement agency across the state of Idaho. As the news of Stephanie's disappearance spread and more and more people became aware of the situation, tips began coming into the police station almost immediately. 
They received several different tips about a yellow pickup truck parked at the high school parking lot, which was located just yards away from Stephanie's elementary school. People felt that this could possibly be connected since nobody recognized the vehicle as belonging to anyone in town. And again, teeny tiny town, everyone knows everyone. So this yellow pickup truck stuck out like a sore thumb. Police began working to try and identify this truck and hopefully track down its owner. The locals began hanging flyers and doing everything they could to stay busy and help search for Stephanie. One of the locals had an idea to begin taking flyers and mailing them out to random homes nationwide to spread awareness about her case. They were also able to bring in one of the best search dogs in the state of Idaho. They wanted to see if they could pick up Stephanie's scent on all of the possible routes that she could have taken. The dog was able to pick up Stephanie's scent just outside and around the bowling alley, but just yards from the alley, her scent was lost. Four days would go by and absolutely zero leads on where Stephanie could be. Investigators decided to interview the children that she had been with that evening at the bowling alley, which to me, I find it a little odd that they weren't questioned sooner. Seems like they might hold some sort of key information about anything they may have seen. And come to find out, several of the children had noticed a person that seemed off to them lurking inside the bowling alley. This was someone that they had never seen before in town. In the disappeared episode on Stephanie, one of her fellow classmates speaks about this man and he even states that the individual looked creepy. The kids recall that this man was really watching all of them while they played their game. Investigators asked the kids to give them any kind of description that they could of the man. One of the kids was able to give a really good description of the man and worked with the FBI composite sketch artist to come up with a sketch of this individual. As soon as the kid felt like it was accurate, investigators sent it out statewide as well as printing flyers for Chalice. Unfortunately, no tips came in to investigators on who this person was. And the whole investigation would be at a standstill for 10 days. The town of Chalice was able to raise a $50,000 reward for information, half of the money coming from individuals from Chalice and the other half coming from an anonymous donor, but still nothing. As the days and weeks began to tick by, her family's worry just continued to intensify. Sleeping and eating was hard. Doing anything but pacing by the phone was next to impossible. And those in the city really felt the impact of her disappearance. They all began living in fear. Was someone in their little community responsible? People kept their kids close, their doors locked, and were constantly looking over their shoulder after this. Instead of allowing kids to ride their bikes or walk to school alone, parents were making sure to take them and pick them up. The carefree, small-town feel really changed after this. Investigators were still doing all that they could and continued to question the townspeople about what they had seen or about anyone suspicious. But what is hard for this case is the fact that Chalice is located directly on that Highway 93 and people are constantly passing through, especially during hunting season, which October was smack dab in the middle of it. 
A year and a half after Stephanie vanished, her parents decided to end their marriage. This is something that I see a lot while researching these missing children cases. Having to go through such a tragic thing is really taxing on a relationship, and many of them end in separation. In 1995, Stephanie's mother, Sandy, moves to Reno, Nevada, and ends up suffering from health issues, which ultimately took her life. Ben, however, stayed behind in Chalice, taking over the full responsibility of raising their three remaining daughters, all while hoping that Stephanie will miraculously be found. Stephanie's case would go completely cold. That is until early 1997 when investigators got a call from the Idaho Department of Fish and Game. They had a man in custody who is a hunter by the name of Keith Hescock. He is in custody for unlawful possession of wildlife. While raiding his belongings, they found a secret stash of pornography, some of which appeared to be images of underage females. And what's more interesting is that they knew for a fact that Keith had been in Chalice that October day that Stephanie went missing. And one more thing that is worth keeping in mind is that Keith also happened to drive a yellow pickup truck that is similar to the one that was reportedly seen in the school parking lot that day. Unfortunately, because the truck cannot be tracked down and the lack of evidence, even after the search of his home, authorities cannot connect Keith to Stephanie's disappearance. And once again, the case would go cold. Five years after Stephanie went missing, Ben decided to move himself and his three daughters to Washington, 800 miles away from Chalice. Stephanie's grandmother Hazel stayed behind in Chalice, again hoping and praying that a miracle would happen. From what I have seen, it seemed way too painful for Ben to remain in Chalice. The fact that Stephanie was missing was eating him alive, and I can only imagine how painful it was to wonder what had happened to his daughter in that small town. Seven years after Stephanie had gone missing in early 2000, a huge new lead would come in. An inmate in custody in Nampa, Idaho, was claiming to have information on Stephanie's disappearance. The inmate was claiming that a female friend of his had been renting a room in a man's apartment back in 1993. This woman had told him that neighbors had heard interesting sounds coming from a street-level window. Apparently, a girl could be heard screaming and crying in the basement, which apparently this basement was completely off-limits to anybody. Nobody was ever allowed to go down there according to this inmate. Authorities were able to track down the woman and bring her in for questioning. She also retold the story pretty much how the inmate told it. She said that the man was one who drifted between Idaho and Oregon. When she lived with him in Nampa, she said his behavior was extremely odd. She also talked about the basement and how nobody was ever allowed to go down there and many people had heard a girl crying. She recalls neighbors believing that someone was being held captive down there. Apparently, this woman had asked the man why he also kept the basement locked and what was going on down there, and he had stated that his daughter was in there and she was being punished for having tried to run away. She had also said that one day when the man was away from the apartment, she had gone through his belongings. 
She found several items that were suspicious, including little girl's underwear. And the fact that nobody ever called this in absolutely blows my mind. If I heard screams and cries repeatedly from the basement window, I would be on the phone with police immediately. But nobody ever did, and apparently this woman was so uncomfortable by the whole entire situation that she immediately moved out of the apartment. Now, I was curious just how far Nampa was from Chalice, and what I found out is that it was just 200 miles apart, which is roughly a 4-hour and 5-minute drive according to Google Maps. Now, the name of this individual was never released, so I'm going to continue referring to him as The Man. Investigators began digging into the man's history and learned that just over a year and a half before Stephanie would go missing, he was arrested and charged with a sex crime that involved a minor, and that minor happened to be his very own daughter. What is infuriating is that he was charged but never had to spend any time in jail due to a plea bargain. He was also allowed to move to the new state of Idaho because this had happened in Oregon. But he was also to only have supervised contact with his daughter, which brings me to the point that whoever was in the basement couldn't have been his daughter because it was supposed to be supervised visitations. And if it wasn't his daughter, then who was it? They tracked this man down and he was still living in Nampa and he agreed to take a polygraph test. The questions that they asked were very direct and forward, and all of which asked him if he had anything to do with Stephanie Crane's disappearance, which all questions he answered with no. According to detectives, he was being super deceptive on all of the answers surrounding Stephanie. When they questioned him about his test results, he came back being super defensive. A week after his polygraph, they were able to obtain a search warrant for his old apartment that he once shared with the woman. They did a thorough search of it. Inside the basement, they found a few mattresses with what appeared to be bloodstains on them, as well as a rope with what appeared to be hair wrapped in it. Now, I'm not sure if this apartment had remained empty after the man had left it or what, but investigators thought all of these things were of interest. They took a sample from the mattress and some of the hair and sent it to a state forensic laboratory near Boise. When they finally got the results back, the bloodied mattress came back inconclusive. Forensic scientists were unable to identify if the blood had come from a human or an animal. The hair, however, came back as human, but they were unable to do any further testing for DNA on it because the hair follicle was not attached. Without physical evidence to tie the man to Stephanie, there was little investigators could do at this point. But they did obtain a picture of him and brought it back to Chalice for a photo lineup to show to one of the employees who had been working at the bowling alley that day that Stephanie went missing. When viewing the photo lineup of different individuals, she pointed out the man from Nampa, but says that she was not 100% certain. But he was who looked most familiar to her. In 2002, a familiar name would come up again. Keith Hescock, who was the hunter that I mentioned earlier that got into trouble for poaching and the pornographic pictures of what appeared to be an underage girl, was in trouble again. Keith had kidnapped a young girl from Idaho Falls and then raped her. He then handcuffed her to the bed and left to go to work. 
He also had told this young girl that he had done this before and had killed a different little girl. When he had left for work, this brave young girl had gotten her hands onto a fire extinguisher and had pounded on the handcuffs until she was able to get away. When he pulled up to his house after work, cops were waiting there for him. Instead of going willingly, he took off on a high-speed chase. He ended up in a completely different county by the time the pursuit was over. He got out on foot and had a gun on him. Keith proceeded to shoot and kill the police dog that was chasing him. He also shot a deputy in the leg and then shot himself. Unfortunately, Keith would die of his wounds, and he remains a suspect in the disappearance of Stephanie Crane. In December of 2006, a new lead comes in. Police are investigating the suicide of a man who lives in Thorn Creek, Idaho. They discovered a suicide note. Written in this note, he states that he had killed himself because he could not live with the guilt of knowing about a man named Kevin Mooney. In this note, the man stated that his friend Kevin Mooney had told him he picked up a young girl from Chalice, raped her, and then killed her, and Kevin had always referred to the girl as Steph. Investigators acted quick and had Kevin Mooney go into the FBI unit in Boise to be given a polygraph. During this polygraph, he stated that he didn't remember being in Chalice when Stephanie had gone missing. He also states that he does not know why his friend would even say that. Kevin ultimately passes his polygraph and after searches were conducted in and around his home with cadaver dogs, he was ultimately ruled out as a person of interest. On October 11, 2012, which was the 19-year anniversary of Stephanie having gone missing, her father Ben dies from a massive heart attack. The case is still an active and ongoing investigation and the drifter man from Nampa has been repeatedly questioned since then. One of the investigators on the Disappeared episode on Stephanie even stated that he felt that this man was very close to cracking back in 2000 when they questioned him for the very first time, but he never took that final step. This case is still an open case and that $50,000 reward is still available for anyone who can give information that could lead to her whereabouts. This coming October 11th will be the 28th anniversary since Stephanie went missing. Her sisters and many members of her family are still searching for answers. Both of her parents went to their graves not knowing what happened to their baby girl. I can't imagine the pain and heartache that comes with having a missing loved one for nearly 30 years. Stephanie Crane was just 9 years old when she went missing on October 11, 1993 from Chalice, Idaho. At the time of her disappearance, she was 4 foot 2 inches and weighed somewhere between 65 and 85 pounds. She has brown hair and blue eyes. Stephanie had a calic on the right side of her hairline as well as a scar near her right eye. Her hair is thick and curly and she has a freckled face. When she went missing, she was wearing a maroon and white hooded sweatshirt with the word gimme on the front of it in white lettering. She also was wearing maroon sweatpants and white shoes. If you or anyone you know has information about Stephanie Crane's whereabouts, you can contact the Custer County Sheriff's Office at 208-879-2232. You can also call the Custer County Sheriff's tip line and leave a message at 208-879-2232.
make sure that you are in our private Facebook discussion group. You can find us by searching Crimeaholics Podcast. I will post all pictures of Stephanie in there as well as a picture of the clothing she was last seen wearing. Be sure you also follow us on TikTok and on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast. Crimeaholics, that's all for now. Until next time, be aware and take care. Mm-hmm.